Thank you very much. What a joy to feast on the word and then to be able to express that in songs of praise to our God. I wanna invite you this time to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. This is a uh, precious psalm. It is a coronation psalm. It is a psalm in which a godly king would vow to commit before he served. I want you to notice the things that are there, the commitments that he makes as a man of God, that we too would make such commitments in our own lives. Psalm 101, a psalm of David. Follow along as I read. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will set before my eyes, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way of, that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house, and no one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. So reads the words of the living God. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What a, what a marvelous privilege it is for us to be able to address you, O God, our creator, as our Father. And this privilege is not ours because we deserve it. It is not ours because we've earned it, nor is it ours because you owe it to us. Rather, this privilege is ours because of the completed work of your Son on the cross. It was our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to you, O Father. And though we, were, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from you, children of wrath, you, Father, made us alive together with Christ so that we can, as sons, cry, Abba, Father. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for saving us. And so, dear Father, we ask this morning that you would help us Help us, therefore, to act like men. Help us to resolve in our hearts to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to resolve to walk in integrity of heart, both in public and in private, where no one else sees but you. Help us to resolve to guard our hearts through the portal of our eyes we would not set worthless things before them, things that are useless, things that are meaningless, things that waste your time. Time lost can never be regained. Help us, Lord. Help us to resolve to surround ourselves with brothers in Christ who are committed to holiness, who strive to depend upon Christ and who labor for the gospel of our Lord. May we resolve as we were just wonderfully exhorted, not just by your servant, Ron, but by our Lord Jesus Christ. May we resolve to humble service, self-sacrificing service, motivated to do something and get it done, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following you. Father, may we do so, even when it is not fun, even when it is not convenient, 
And even when we get no applause, no recognition, no pats in the back, even in the midst of those whom we serve may treat us as servants, may we still delight to follow in your steps. For you, O oh God, deserve such worship. And as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, may we share in suffering for his name's sake. And let everything that we do, Father, be done in love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we've looked at uh, leadership from a couple different angles already in this conference, and the one that uh, was just pre presented to us of humble service was so uh, rich and profound. Thank you for that again, Ron. I have the privilege now of introducing to you Russ Brewer. He is, uh, as you can see from his bio, he's been in ministry for more than 15 years, uh, currently an elder pastor at Wellington Community Church just up the road in Wellington, Colorado. He's married to Corinne. And they have five kids, and I'm told Corinne is pregnant with their sixth. So they're still busy. Um, Russ has a vast range of ministry experience, and you can see that if you peeked at his bio. He's come to us most recently from back east, where he is from. He's a native of New Jersey. Don't worry, though. He's cool with gun ownership. Totally fine with that. Still, he is a true Northeasterner. You're going to love him. He's straightforward and guileless. Also a dear, dear brother and an excellent pastor. Russ, come wherever you are. There you are. You're coming from the back row, already demonstrating humility. But uh, come on, minister the word to us, Russ. It is uh, exciting to be with you and a real privilege and an honor to be here this morning. Uh, one that uh, we're just excited about, even as Ron was saying, just uh, seeing the men come on out and join together and want to hear from God's word and want to uh, begin to reclaim biblical manhood in our churches and our homes and our families. And thank you all for being a part of this. Last night, we laid this incredible foundation of what God calls us to be, uh, going back to the blueprint. And then uh, Ron and his, his, uh, his challenge to just follow the way of Christ and, and really just to build upon that and now look at what it means to live this out in a practical sense. And we're going to talk about that looking at Nehemiah chapter 5. As we begin our message this morning, when I flew back to Newark this past week, being from the East Coast, coming back periodically, it is uh, a constant reminder to think about the 9-11 attacks. Uh, it was going on almost 15 years ago since those attacks. And I, can I would imagine that most of us know where we were on the day that that happened, unless we were too young to remember those days. I myself was in seminary. And I remember exactly where I was when I first heard about it. I was with some friends. We were carpooling on our way to school, and they were telling me the attacks. And being that I was from New Jersey, it was particularly devastating because the World Trade Center was visible from nearby to where I grew up. And, and I saw it. I wouldn't say it was daily, but I could see it frequently. If you went to the high hills of our neighborhoods, you could see it. Or if you went to the beaches, which is only a few miles away, you could see it across the bay. In my own area where I grew up, there were many people who were killed in the attacks. There's a monument that I drove by just a, a few days ago dedicated to the people from my county who were killed. One of the men in that region, not exactly my county, but not too far from where I had lived, was a man by the name of Todd Beamer. Now, Todd Beamer is a name we may know. He's the man who said, let's roll on that flight that, that crashed in Pennsylvania. Until that day, I, I would imagine none of us had ever heard of Todd Beamer, but his actions on that day, on that flight, has become the stuff of legends. Where does Todd Beamer get his legendary heroicism? He was a sales executive. He was a top performer. How do you go from being a top performer in sales to becoming a top hero uh, in America? Well, life is filled with millions of decisions that require faithfulness. And Todd Beamer grew up in a Christian home, and he took his faith seriously. As a young man, he attended, attended Wheaton College out by Chicago. He married his sweetheart from there, and, and together they taught Sunday school in Princeton, not far from where I just performed the wedding last weekend. Todd was on that flight because of faithfulness to his family. 
He had just returned from a short trip to Italy with his wife where he was given this award for being a top sales performer. He wanted to spend the evening with his family and then he was going to leave the next morning to go to California on a business trip. And so at 6.15 in the morning, he heads up to the airport and he takes this flight from Newark to San Francisco on September 11th. Well, as we know, shortly after the flight, the terrorists sprung into action. They killed the pilots. Many of the people were terrified. They began calling home. Todd's call was routed by airphone to an emergency call center. He spoke with the agent for a while there. He actually spoke with her and prayed with her on the phone. And then he said those words we've heard so many times now, let's roll. And he got up and he led his fellow passengers to overtake the terrorists and ultimately ruin their plans of greater destruction. It has been said that the heroes of Flight 93 were the first warriors against the battle of terrorism. The lead warrior was just a common guy from New Jersey. Now, most of us won't be called into such acts of heroism, but all of us are called to act. God calls us to be men of action, Men of action, whether it's battling terrorists in the skies or battling temptations to throw in the towel during a midlife crisis, God calls every one of us to faithful action. We can see the example of great leaders and think, well, I can never be like them. I can't be a Vince Lombardi, but we can be a a Todd Beamer. We can be a regular Joe. Scripture is filled with men who have surrendered their lives to following God's blueprint and who are moved to action besides being blandly normal. Moses stuttered and felt he wasn't much of a leader. Gideon was timid. David had moral failure. Peter denied the Lord. The list goes on and on, and yet God has called these men to action despite their weaknesses and their limitations, and he calls all of us in this room to action too. Throughout this conference, we've been talking about the principles of biblical manhood. Pastor Travis showed us last night that God's design for men is that we would work and that we would lead and that we would become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Pastor Ron just gave us a powerful message of what that looks like as we see Jesus as the blueprint for masculinity. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.13, the the ultimate text for our conference, that we are to act like men. The question is, what does it look like to act like a man when it's you and I. God has given you and I each different personalities, different skills, different strengths, different weaknesses. How do we take who God has made us to be and conform to God's blueprint and act like a man? Well, the inherent principle behind all this biblical instruction that we're going over this weekend is that when God gets a hold of a man's heart, he transforms us so that we no longer live for our own kingdom, but now for his. You see, Adam threw off the rule of God and began living by his own kingdom. Jesus restored that rule, and we as his people now submit to the rule of God and serve him and his kingdom. And so according to 1 Corinthians 16, 13, when we act like men, we are acting like men who are now in service to the Lord. God calls us to be men of action. It goes back to the very instruction God gave to Adam. God, Adam was to work. The instructions were clear. Don't sit on the couch playing video games all day. Don't amass a pile of, of pomegranates from the garden just to store for your own personal use. Adam was supposed to do something, and he was supposed to, we see in that text, cultivate and lead. Cultivate the garden and lead his wife. By Genesis 3, though, Adam and Eve, they forsook God's blueprint. And by chapter 4, that blueprint was so marred by their example that Adam's own son sought to live for a kingdom of himself, and he killed his brother who was seeking to live for the kingdom of God. And so the message of Scripture is that God has created us with a perfect design. We have thrown off that design. And the more we reject the design of God, the more dissatisfaction and disunity and displeasure we experience as men. And that just, we see that through society today. But men, we were not created to be weak or apathetic or aimless. We were created for a purpose, and that is to glorify God, to serve God and his kingdom. 
And when we come to Christ and when we're reconciled to God through the cross, when a man is born again, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And God's Spirit takes up residency within our hearts. He changes us so that we no longer follow our old course, but our new course. This was so dramatic in the Bible that sometimes men would change their names because the change was so different. God has called us to be men who are redeemed by God and redeemed back to his original design. Now the scriptures are peppered with men who who either follow God's blueprint or they reject it. And we see God's blessings or, or, or his displeasure based on that. With Esau, we see God cursing the irresponsibility of Esau but we see him blessing the, the repentance of Jacob. We see God curse the expediency of King Saul, but he blesses the faithfulness of David. He curses the wishy-washy teachings of the false prophets, but he blesses the clear proclamation of Jeremiah and Isaiah and the other prophets. And so over and over again, we see that God will bless men who pursue his paths of righteousness, and we see that he will curse men or, or, or bring uh, lack of productivity to their efforts, even when they claim to be men of God, when they forsake the blueprint he has given to them in Scripture. As we look through Scripture, and as I was thinking about what text to preach on for this morning, going through the Bible in a year in our church, I came across this amazing passage from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. Here's how the Bible, the Holman Bible Dictionary describes Nehemiah the person. Nehemiah was a man of action. How cool is that? First sentence, right as we're talking at this conference. Nehemiah was a man of action. He got things done. He knew how to use persuasion, but also force. One may properly call him the father of Judaism. Because of Nehemiah, Judaism had a fortified city, a purified people, a dedicated and unified nation, renewed economic stability, and a new commitment to God's law. Nehemiah was a man of action. And so this morning, I'd like for us to look at Nehemiah chapter 5 and see in the example of Nehemiah, really a regular Joe who took the personality and the resources God gave to him and dedicated them, him, those things to the work of God. And we see then God bless him and his efforts. So, quick background to Nehemiah chapter 5, really the whole book of Nehemiah. The events of Nehemiah span an 11-year period, starting around 444 B.C. We may know the history. By this point, there was, there was the divided kingdoms, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Israel, Judah. The Assyrians had taken over Israel in 722 B.C. BC. The Babylonians took over Judah in 586 B.C. As we're coming into Nehemiah, this 70-year captivity is now over, and God is beginning the restoration process of his people. As the course of history were to work out, the Babylonians were essentially conquered by the Medes and Persians. The rule of the empire was transferred from one emperor to another, and just to kind of summarize them, it kind of went from Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to Cyrus of Persia, and then to Artaxerxes, who was also Persian, in 465 B.C. Artaxerxes had a Jewish cupbearer named Nehemiah. And that's who we're talking about today. The name Nehemiah means God encourages. And Nehemiah lived from 470 to 399 B.C. He was a contemporary of Ezra and Malachi. In the Gentile world, he was a contemporary of Socrates. And, and, and around the time of Buddha and Confucius, to give you an idea of where he lived in history. The book of Nehemiah opens around, as you said, 444, 445 B.C. With Nehemiah serving Artaxerxes as a cupbearer. Now, we need to understand what a cupbearer was, and probably many of us do. A cupbearer is a highly trusted individual in those days. In the book of Genesis, Joseph was a cupbearer to Pharaoh. The cupbearer was the last person who would touch the king's food before it would go into the king's mouth. The purpose was to ensure that the food was safe and that the king would not be poisoned. Often the cupbearer himself would eat some of the food. It might be seeming like an easy position, but only the most trusted people would, would have it. The cupbearer was frequently around the king. He would potentially hear secret and confidential privileged information. Often cupbearers would become the, the king's closest compatriots. They were people of integrity and worth and trusted value. And so Nehemiah was cupbearer to the emperor of Persia, Artaxerxes. As he is living in the town of Susa, 
Nehemiah gets this report on what's going on in Jerusalem. He's in Susa. It's about a 900-mile journey, shorter by the, how the crow flies, but about 900 to journey there. And he gets this, this report from his brothers that Jerusalem is not well. The Jews living there haven't fared very well. The economy is in complete disarray. The city is in disrepute. The walls are burned down. The gates, or the walls are broken down. The gates were burned. And Nehemiah begins to weep. You see, the, the, a, a crucial element in the life of any city is its ability to defend itself. And one of the primary ways that any city is going to defend itself in those days was to have a strong wall built around the city to protect the inhabitants. And the walls of Jerusalem were falling apart. The, the, the people of God were vulnerable to attack. And so Nehemiah weeps. Nehemiah fasts. And to make a long story short, Artaxerxes ends up promoting Nehemiah to be the governor of Jerusalem and gives him permission to travel to Jerusalem and, and be a part of rebuilding this wall. And so Nehemiah returns, and we know the story well, that it was only 52 days. They, they put this wall back together again. And this wall was not a small wall. By archaeological uh, examination, it's about 15 feet wide, probably similar in height. It was several miles in circumference. Some have estimated that the average party that was working on the wall, when you look at all the names in, in the book of Nehemiah, it would be roughly about 168 yards per group of people working on that wall. You can imagine in the room of this size, working basically by hand, having us build a wall 15 feet high, similar, or 15 feet wide, similar in height, in 52 days, nearly 200 yards long. It would be seemingly impossible, and yet God did the impossible through Nehemiah. Nehemiah was successful in leading the people. He led the charge to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He protected the people during the work. In chapter 8, he also led a spiritual revival, he and Ezra. He restored the practice of tithing. He corrected Sabbath wrongdoing. And in the 11 years that this book covers, Nehemiah has an incredible resume of accomplishments. He was a man of action. But his success was not because of his great strategy. It wasn't his leadership capabilities. We can see some, some principles, but it wasn't those. It was because he was aligned to God, and it was God who was blessing his efforts. Nehemiah was a man who was following the blueprint of God. He was taking his resources as God, as God gave to him and served them and dedicated them to the Lord, and the Lord blessed him for his service. So Nehemiah was a man of action, but it was not all fun and games. During the same time, Nehemiah was facing personal death threats. There was constant threats of attack. Things were so bad for these, these threats that the people would have to work with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. There were piles of rubbish thrown about. There were weakened warriors. At times, there was a loss of confidence amongst the people. In the midst of all of this difficulty, though, there was a greater threat and a greater danger that potentially could undermine everything that they were working towards. And that danger did not come from an outside enemy, but it came from within the ranks of Nehemiah's leadership. The leaders were making selfish choices. They were discouraging the people. They were demoralizing the people and draining them. And we can read about this in Nehemiah chapter 5, how he was a man of action. He sees what's going on, he prays about it, and he is faithful to respond. So let's look, look in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5, and let's see what God's word has to say to us. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there, was, there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. So here we have right away, we have people with large families. There's a famine going on. They're saying, we need to get something to eat because we've got big homes, a lot of kids, got to feed them. But there's others who also have hunger issues. And so verse 3, there were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. In verse 4, there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like our children. And yet behold, basically we're Jews too, but behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. 
And so you've got this, this famine going on. Everyone is hungry, and they're all comparing who is more hungry, who's got the worst situation, and, and everybody is upset. Word of this gets to Nehemiah in verse 6. And he says, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I consulted within myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury from each of his brothers. He's basically saying, You guys are the problem for this financial distress. And therefore I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you sell them, your brothers, that they would be sold to us? They were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, in verse 9, I said, The things which you are doing is not good. Should, not, should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I likewise, my brothers and servants, are lending money and grain Basically saying, I understand, but please leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundred part of the money of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are extracting from them. And then we see their response in verse 12. Then they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. And so I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. And also I shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And then the people did according to this promise. So that's our passage. Here we have some, some rich principles of what it means to be a man who says, okay, where am I at? What has God given me? And how can I serve the kingdom? So if you're taking notes here, as we're looking at principles of what it means to be a man of action, we see for our first point that men of action pursue righteousness. It was great to have Moses read that psalm because it just fits so well where this principle is going about pursuing righteousness. Throughout this entire passage, really throughout the entire book of Nehemiah, he is a man who is pursuing righteousness. He cared deeply about what was right. Now, in our world, there aren't many people like this. Few people care about doing what is right before God. A lot of times you'll have people do what they think is right. It's amazing. In, in just various worlds, I once met a drug dealer who was convinced that he was okay as a drug dealer because he was at least selling good drugs to people. People do what they think is right. They do what works. They do what is expedient. They do maybe what will make them well-liked by others, but most people do not focus on doing what is right in the eyes of God. Going back to the blueprint, Psalm 15.4 says, A righteous person keeps an oath even when it hurts. A righteous person is so focused on pleasing God, they will do what's right even when it hurts. Most people will stop doing what is right the moment it costs them something. You can see this. They'll have every intention of doing what's right, but the minute it costs them something, they give up. Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man who passionately pursued the right course by way of a quick overview. In chapter 1, when he hears about the problems of Jerusalem, he realizes, as, as Pastor Ron just said, that he had a personal responsibility to being a part of solving those needs. In chapter 2, he encourages his fellow Jews that they too have a responsibility and need to engage in the work. In chapter 3, he, he continues the work despite the challenges. In chapter 4, he perseveres in the face of ridicule and insult. How many people pursue what is right when they're being mocked? And here in chapter 5, this, this same righteousness has gripped his heart. He sees that his fellow leaders have using their, are using their position to take advantage of their fellow men, and he responds. And we see kind of this setup here as we look at verse 1 again to remind ourselves of what's going on. Look at verse 1. He says, Now there's a great outcry of, of the people and of their wives against their, their Jewish brothers. And this is what was so infuriating about this. It wasn't people on the outside. It wasn't the Ammonites or the Ashdodites. These were fellow Jews. There was a famine going on. And, and because of this famine, the people in verse 2 couldn't feed their families. 
people in verse 3 were so desperate they had to mortgage their field and their homes. Things had gotten so bad by verse 5, people were selling their kids into slavery. This was so serious. People were willing to go into be to be slaves rather than die of starvation. It was a desperate, desperate situation. But it wasn't desperate for everyone. In fact, some people were doing okay. In verse 7, we find out it was the nobles and the rulers, their Jewish brethren, who were doing just fine. In fact, their wealth was increasing because they were the ones who were causing the problem. They had food. They had resources. They could help you pay the emperor's tax. I'll give it to you. I'll lend. But at a price. And they sought to profit off their brethren's need. Now this, this injustice was, was, was so severe. In verse 1, the people are crying out for help. Now if you're taking notes, this word cry out here is an important word in the text. The word cry out here is the Hebrew word sakah. It was the word that was used to mean crying out usually to God. It was the word that was used by Esau when he lost his blessings. This is the word that was used by Israel when they lost the ark. This is the word used by people who were plundered and ravaged by war. Sakah was the word used when righteousness was absent and people cry out to a righteous God to restore righteousness. Sakah. So you is actually in Exodus 22. Let's turn our Bibles to Exodus 22. It's kind of a sister passage and one I'm sure that was foundational to their understanding of what was going on here. Exodus 22, starting in verse 25. Moses writes, he says, if you lend money to my people, this is under the inspiration of God, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is a cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come, to, it shall come about when he cries out to me. I will hear him, for I am gracious. That word cry out there is the same word used back in Nehemiah chapter 1. When the people cry out to God because of their financial burden, he hears them. And here in Exodus 22, it's very clear. God cares about his people. He cares deeply about his people. He hears their prayers. He wants to see them handled in a just and righteous manner. You can lend money, but you cannot take advantage of them. If this contract is so harsh that nobody will agree to it unless they were desperate, then it is an un unrighteous contract. And that is exactly what we have going on in Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's go back to Nehemiah 5. In Nehemiah chapter 5, the people are in dire straits. They had nowhere else to turn. The people who had food and money had all the advantage. And so the poor people have been taken advantage of by the leadership of society, and they cry out to God, and God hears that cry, and God then takes that cry, and he brings it to the ears of of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a man who is a man of action. He's a man who pursues righteousness. God brought the matter to a man of righteousness and a man of action. Now this should comfort and maybe motivate any of us here this morning. God hears the cries of the people who cry out to him. And there may be someone here Maybe because of work or difficulty in their home or their marriage. They're crying out to God for deliverance from an unjust situation. God hears those cries. And God is a part of the solution. Maybe we're hearing the cries of others. Maybe we're aware of needs around us. Maybe we need to be like Nehemiah and now become a man of action and be God's agent to deliver them. James 4.17 warns us, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And it may be that God has made you aware of this situation because he is calling you to action. He's calling you to step in, to do what is right, to alleviate pain and suffering. Now, we could be Todd Beamer and do something incredibly heroic. We could just be a regular Joe and maybe drive a person in our church to the hospital or a doctor's appointment. 
It might be something as, as righteous and kind as mentoring a child in our church who doesn't have a father. It might be as easy as sending a person a text who we haven't seen at church this past weekend to let them know we care. It's possible there's a person near you who is crying out to God for help, and God intends for you to be the man of action. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens when we love righteousness. Man of action, men of God, pursue what is righteous. We have to love righteousness. We won't act righteously unless we love righteousness. Righteousness is hard, certainly unpopular in our society. It's uncomfortable. And we won't hunger for justice until we first hunger for righteousness. And so here we have these wealthy Jews in Nehemiah chapter 5. They weren't hungering for righteousness. And what's amazing is, no doubt, they were probably all very religious. This was the group that was going to go back and, and, and rebuild Jerusalem. They held positions of, of high social status. They were probably respected. They had all this wealth. They were probably people who were needed and had roles within their community. But they weren't people who loved righteousness. And they had no problem taking advantage of their brothers. Not only that, their peers didn't really get too bothered by it either. Nobody was addressing this problem. People were sitting on their hands and, and letting unrighteousness go by and doing nothing about it. Maybe they'd rather have uh, the business relationship with that person rather than addressing the unrighteousness. Maybe they would rather have the friendship of that person rather than addressing the unrighteousness. Maybe they'd just rather have peace. Studies have shown that this is a natural trend towards all of us. It's something that the natural man, the man who follows Adam, tends to do. Even as far as the 1950s, far back as that, a study was done on the effects of peer pressure. This is a really amazing study. They would take groups of people and they would have them look at a card with three lines on it, and the purpose was to identify which line was shortest. And there would be these groups of maybe eight people or so. The thing was, only one person was actually real. The rest were actors. And so they would all sit in line, and they would have the real person at the end. And they would all say which line they thought was the shortest. And the, the actors would intentionally, occasionally, say a different line was shorter. Even though it was obvious, they, they made the lines obvious in which one was longer and which one was shorter. It was, it was clear. In fact, when they did it without the actors, virtually everybody got everyone right every time. But they found that even though the answer was obvious, as that person would sit there and hear all those people say, this is right, this is right, this is right. By that last person, 75% at some point would give in and declare something was right when it was not. Amazingly, a third of the people gave in most of the time, and 5% gave in every time. Even though the answer was absolutely clear, they were not willing to speak up and correct the people around them. And so that's what's going on in Nehemiah's day. It was obvious that this usury was wrong, but nobody wanted to stand up and speak out. And so against this that backdrop, we can see even more brightly how Nehemiah's convictions shine. Because he's now going against peers. He's going against fellow nobilities. He's going against rulers of a society. And he's putting his own name on the line, his own credibility on the line. They could have turned him down. They could have ignored him, refused. You know, they, they weren't opposed to uh, even mutinying against a leader they didn't like. And Nehemiah probably understood all these risks, but he saw the need, he saw the unrighteousness, and he felt it was more important to correct what was right and pay whatever price was necessary than to let this go by on his watch. Men of action are committed to righteousness and justice. When we commit to being a man who loves righteousness, God will begin to open our eyes to the needs around us. God will show us how we can get involved and be a part of the solution. Now, a lot of times we think, well, I'm not Moses, and I'm not Vince Lombardi, and I'm not Todd Beamer. I'm just a regular Joe. I think this was most clear with a friend of mine who I knew back in California when I was in seminary. Just as I was graduating seminary, I developed a friendship with an incredible man of God. Not just your average Joe, a little bit kind of lower on the, 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 the stratosphere, he didn't have a whole lot of education. He was a farmer from the South. He'd been a farmer then in southern Los Angeles for decades, but he was from the South. Wasn't a young man when I met him. He was about 60 years old. He had no degrees that I'm aware of. 
Not sure what the education was, but it wasn't a lot. But he was a man who loved God. And he was a man who was willing to be a man of action. And one day, here he's a farmer living out in the farmlands. And he's walking the streets of Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is an interesting city. You can be in the beautiful downtown parts, make a wrong turn, and you're suddenly in tent cities in Skid Row. He walked into that area and he saw all the people living on the streets. And he saw that there were these, these tenement homes where people would rent rooms for $300 a month and they would live for years in these rooms that were a little bit larger than a queen bed. And God galvanized him to action. And he wasn't much of a speaker. Didn't have a whole lot, like I said, of resources, but he could make pulled pork sandwiches. And he made a great pulled pork sandwich. And so he and his wife would spend hours making homemade pulled pork sandwiches, wrapping them in tinfoil, and he would go down the streets and he would hand them out to people. And he would give them to people. And this would open up doors to talk about the Lord. And so people were, were coming to Christ. And he was going down every week. But he, he, got, he, got to, he got to know them after a while and know their names and know their story. And he began to see that they, they weren't changing. He was a man of action, though. And so he starts to disciple them. Who disciples people on the streets? He starts discipling people on the streets. They start calling him Rev. Over time, they start a little church. Eventually, he's ordained by the Southern Baptists, and his church begins to send people to this, this rehab center out in the country. It's a Southern Baptist rehab center. And he would send, when people would want to get their lives right, Lord, he would send them on up. They stopped counting at 600 people sent from the streets. God got a hold of this man's heart. He was a man of action who loved righteousness. He went to be with the Lord only a few months ago, and his church was around all the way up to those days. He was a man of action. He pursued righteousness. He had very little in his toolbox, but the tools he had, he set before the Lord, and God blessed his efforts. Men who follow God's blueprint love righteousness. Nehemiah loved righteousness. He was grieved by injustice. He acted, and God blessed that's our first point. Let's go to our second point. Men of action act with prayerful wisdom. Men of action act with prayerful wisdom. Now, if we just stopped here at point number one, we might think that God doesn't care what we do as long as we just do something, that God just wants us busy. But that's not the case. God is not looking for yet one more person who's going to completely ignore him and go off and do whatever they want, even if it seems right. That's what the world does. God doesn't need more people who won't listen to the general and do what they want. God is seeking people who have prayerful wisdom to do what he wants them to do, not what they want. Not every need constitutes a call. Nehemiah was a man of prayerful wisdom, and he sought God's will and how to respond. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Uh, in the opening verses of chapter 1, when he hears about the condition of Jerusalem, he fasts and he prays. I love that. In chapter 2, verse 4, Nehemiah again prays to God before speaking to Artaxerxes. In chapter 4, as they face opposition from their enemies, Nehemiah again prays to God. Even at the end of this passage, it was not what we read, but he, Nehemiah goes back to praying to God. Nehemiah was a man of prayerful wisdom. We get a sense of what this may have looked like here in verse 7 when Nehemiah says, I consulted with myself. And, and no doubt a man of prayer is going to include all aspects of what it means to think and pray. In fact, the word consulted there is this, this Hebrew word for a debate. It's this idea of a give and take of ideas. In this particular passage here, the Hebrew grammar indicates that Nehemiah was a part of both sides. He could see both sides. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a reflexive verb. It means he was on both sides of the action, participating and doing the action. Essentially, he was thinking things through, giving, giving and taking on both sides of the debate. He was examining the matter from every angle. He was weighing and considering the options. And then once he decided, okay, this is the way to go, he pursued the course with faithfulness. And we'll get to that with our third point. Now, this internal debate had two practical benefits. First, it gave him wisdom. We need prayerful wisdom as men to choose a course of action that will be effective. Nehemiah wasn't just trying to, to do something to make himself feel good. Kind of like the, the phone call to a person and, and offering to help, but you get the voicemail and like, I, I tried. He's actually trying. He's actually trying to change the situation. He actually wants to make it different. There's no point in giving a knee-jerk response that would be ineffective. So this internal debate allowed him to choose a good course. 
choose to avoid the others. This also gave Nehemiah a chance to work through his emotions. We see here in verse 6 that Nehemiah was pretty angry with the situation. It's good that he's angry, but it would not be good if he was blinded by his anger. The Hebrew word for anger in verse 6 means to burn hotter and hotter. When Nehemiah first heard the situation, his anger was kindled, and as he thought about it more, he became more angry. And so pausing for this internal debate allowed Nehemiah to restrain his temper and to find a clear path that would be effective. This is a key component of all men of action. We always have emotions going on. Sometimes it's our insecurity. Sometimes it's our pride. Sometimes it's our anger. We're flooded with emotions, but a man of action knows how to control them by being a thoughtful, prayerful, wise man. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city that is broken down and without a wall, so is a person who cannot control his temper. A man who cannot control the, the, the passions within him is like a city broken down and without a wall. Interesting how that's what Nehemiah is trying to build. Righteous men know how to control their passions. Few of the challenges that face us are best resolved with knee-jerk responses. For Nehemiah, it was going to require more than a knee-jerk response to build the walls. It's going to require more than a knee-jerk response to handle the attacks of Sanballat. It's required more than a knee-jerk response to handle these leaders. So Nehemiah controlled his temper. He weighed the options. He made the intellectual decision of what would be most likely to restore righteousness. And so again in verse 7, he goes to them directly. And he says, You are exacting usury each from his brother. Now, it's important to see here that Nehemiah, with this wise course of action, goes directly. A lot of times people will go and confront somebody, but they'll be so vague and ambiguous in their comments, the person doesn't even know they're being confronted. And that other will walk away saying, I confronted him, he refused. Talk to the other person, they I never, never talked to me. They didn't know they were being confronted. That's not a wise course to, to, to be so vague people don't know. But here we see Nehemiah is crystal clear. He doesn't kind of sneak this rebuke. Oh, and one more thing as we're, we're, we're done with the conversation. He doesn't sneak it at the end. He's straightforward from the start. Nehemiah was clear. But we also see, and I want to show us here, that Nehemiah, although he was clear, was not rude. Just because, because Nehemiah was direct doesn't mean he was rude. He, he, he rebukes these leaders, yes, but he does it in a way that builds bridges rather than burns them. See, sometimes I think we're afraid to confront people because we think the only way you can do this is to be rude and to be harsh and to break bridges. But godly people know how to confront in a way that is kind. They don't shirk away from confronting. They shirk away from being rude. We see this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, And I likewise, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please leave off this usury. His words are firm, but they're not unhinged. He enters into their dilemma. He says, I recognize what you're trying to do, but please leave off this usury. Nehemiah is speaking with a gentle reasonableness that was fed by being prayerfully wise. In verse 7, he points out that their usury is against the Lord, maybe referencing the, the, the verses from Exodus 22. In verse 8, he underscores these verses. These brothers were redeemed from the nations for the people of God. He admonishes them in verse 9 to fear God. And then he says in verse 10, please, please. Look at verse 11, he says it again. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. It's a fascinating step of diplomacy. Nehemiah had all the power. I mean, he, he had the complete moral authority to come down hard. He was surrounded by a mob we see in the context of, of angry citizens. He has Exodus 22 and other verses on his side. Even in verse 8, the priests were there backing him up. He has all the power, and yet he is still graciously reasonable when he's speaking with them. He is able to be this way because he's a man of prayerful wisdom. And we see the effect in verse 12. They say, I mean, they see his rightness. We, we will give it back and require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. Because Nehemiah was a man of prayerful wisdom who, who chose a good course, he, understand, he understood these men. He, he thought about them, he understood them. He could see that they were misguided, but somehow he knew at the end of the day they would be willing to obey the word of God. And Nehemiah didn't need 
to tear them down. He didn't need to burn the bridges. His prayerful wisdom allowed him to find a, a peaceful resolution that honored the Lord and honored the noblemen and honored the people and achieved harmony. That's wisdom, and that comes from walking with God. Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. One of my favorite verses, I think about it as a parent all the time. Proverbs 15.2, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. Let me think this through so the other person sees my point, so that my teenagers, my, my fellow leaders in the church, the, the person on the street understands and, and says, that's acceptable. That's what we see Nehemiah doing here. Nehemiah's wisdom has made his actions and his words, his exhortations, acceptable to everyone involved. Men who follow God's blueprint are prayerfully wise. They don't fly off. They don't let their emotions rule them. They give matters an internal debate. They seek prayerful wisdom. And God will then bless them as they act wisely in submission to him. That's our second point. Let's move on to our third point. As we're looking at this example of what do we be, how do we, how do we live our lives? Live faithfully. Men of action act faithfully. Going to the New Testament just for a moment. In Matthew 25, you don't have to turn there. It's the parable of the talents. It's a story we all know well. We could probably even tell the story ourselves. The parable starts out with a man going on a long journey. He calls his servants together and he gives his servants a number of talents. And to the first, he gives five talents. To the second, two talents. To the third, one talent. While he's gone, the first two talents invest, I'm sorry, the first two servants invest their talents and then they make more talents. The third servant just digs a hole and buries his. When the man returns, the first two servants bring their talents to him and, and they say, Master, you entrusted me with these talents. I've gained you this many more. And they both received the same wording and same response from the Lord. He says, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Each servant receives a reward for his faithfulness. Good and faithful slave. But not the third. Third does not get this response at all. He buries his talent and he says, I knew you were a hard man. I was afraid and hid your talent on the ground. And the master says of him, you wicked and lazy slave. Wicked and lazy. I gave you talents and you did not use them. It is wickedness and laziness. What a, what a, what a contrast. Two servants were called good and faithful. One was called lazy and wicked. And the difference was how they used their talents. I can't think of anything really more joyful when I stand before the Lord and hearing him commend me for my faithfulness. I can't think of anything more frightening than hearing him condemn me for my laziness. Gentlemen, God has given each of us talents to use for his kingdom. He calls us to be men of action, not men of laziness. And that means we're faithful servants to the Lord. Going back to Nehemiah, we can see Nehemiah's faithfulness throughout this entire situation. Right from the very beginning, Nehemiah was faithful to listen. Sometimes we can be unfaithful simply by putting our fingers on our ears and ignoring the needs around us. Nehemiah was faithful to listen. He was willing to hear the cries of his fellow brethren. He was willing to get involved and to help. They say that 80% of the church is done by 20% of the people. That's a sad statistic. Hopefully it's not true of our churches. But I wonder, what percentage of that 80% is actually done by men? Men of action step up and get involved. They listen to the needs around them. They use their talents and their resources to be a part of the solution. Now I know what it's like living in northern Colorado. I can see the busyness. It's not at all unlike the business of the Northeast. I understand what it means to work long, hard hours. I grew up in a family business. We would, both my parents, work 60 hours every week. It's what I grew up watching. I understand what it's like to have a, an employee come and say, I'd like to have some time off, and the difficulty in that decision or how hard it would be to go ask a boss for some time off and say, I need to go serve the Lord. I need to go to a men's retreat conference. 
I know how difficult that is. And if that's the case for you, I would encourage you to ask God to change your relationship with your boss and your work so that you can invest in things that will last for eternity. The wise person stores up treasures in heaven. We see Nehemiah in this situation right here. Nehemiah is a trusted confidant of Artaxerxes. He's got a role, he's got a job, and basically he asked for some time off to get into, to engage in the work of the Lord. Now, as we look at that, and think about maybe a, the CEO of Motorola where I used to work and, you know, coming and say, hey, I'd like some time off, we would think, well, Artaxerxes, of course, would say no. But there's an interesting dynamic because the 80-20 rule also applies to most businesses. Most of the productivity and output of any department, any company, is usually produced by a handful of individuals. Nehemiah is one of those people. And so when Nehemiah is a valued employee coming to his boss saying, I'd like some time off, amazingly, Artaxerxes gives it to him. Artaxerxes values Nehemiah. So when Nehemiah made that request, Artaxerxes let him go. Nehemiah's faithful service to the Lord began with his faithful service to Artaxerxes. That's where it began. That's what enabled him to be able to come to Jerusalem and fix these problems. We need to be the men who are a part of that 20% who are getting the job done. Going back to our passage, when you look at the sequence of events, Nehemiah is a man who gets the job done. There's a ton of stuff going on throughout this whole text here. He's listening to the people. He's hearing their stories. That's probably taking time, all these appointments to hear these people. He's considering the options. He decides a course of action. He calls a meeting, and he establishes a game plan, even establishes a path of accountability. There's a lot of work going on here. Nehemiah didn't want to just have all this work go by and have nothing come of it. He wants to get the job done. Sometimes we'll work as long as, long as it's easy. We can get it done quickly. It doesn't matter how much time it takes. As long as I can just, I mean, I don't want to do all the time. There's a lot of time. I just, as long as it's quick and easy. I don't care if it really gets done. I just want to have a small role. The work that matters for eternity is too important for us to do during commercial breaks. It's too important for us to not make sure the job gets done. Nehemiah wasn't squeezing this in between hobbies. He didn't mail it in. He made sure the job got done. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. Men of action are men of faithfulness. A steward is a person given a trust. And when someone puts their trust in us, we are called to be faithful to honor that trust. I like to tell my kids, faithfulness is doing the right thing at the right time in the right manner. Got to tell kids that a lot. Faithfulness is doing the right thing at the right time in the right manner. If we're not doing the right thing, we're not being faithful with our talents. If we don't complete it at the right time, we're not being faithful. If we didn't do it in the right manner, the right excellence and quality that was expected of us, then we're not being faithful. There are a few things more difficult to any community, any family, any church than unfaithfulness. Here's a verse to write down and remember. Proverbs 25, 19. Like a broken tooth or a lame foot is reliance upon the unfaithful in a time of trouble. If you ever had a bad tooth and you bite down on it, it sends shooting pain through your head. If you ever step on a wobbly rock, the moment you put any pressure on it, you fall over, especially if you've got a backpack on. God calls us to faithfulness that is steady, and gets the job done. Because Nehemiah was faithful, he stayed even in the face of, course, in the face of discouragement and disappointment. He was steady. He got the job done. I can only imagine how discouraged Nehemiah was in the beginning of Nehemiah 5. I mean, he's got this incredible task to do. You've got these, these invaders, these, these threats. We're just trying to build the walls, guys. He's trying to build the wall. He's trying to manage people who are, are kind of having difficulties. He personally is expending tremendous personal finance and effort. And, and there's these other fellow men who should have known better taking advantage of the situation for their personal gain. That would have been so discouraging for Nehemiah. I wouldn't be surprised if he felt tempted just to 
Forget it. I'll go back to Artaxerxes. But he didn't. He stayed the course. He didn't give up. He didn't walk away. He stuck it out. And he saw through to the victory of God. Gentlemen, you probably have many roles in your world and many times where you might be tempted just to check out. Many of us are husbands. Faithful men stay the course, even in their homes. Many of us are fathers. There's a pretty good chance our kids are not perfect. Faithful men stay the course. They keep on parenting. I'm 43. I listen to my dad who's 76. If he says something, I listen to him. Faithful men. Many of us are leaders in our churches. When you're in leadership, you have a front row seat to watching the sins and the failings of people in the church, but what's worse is even in your own boards. Faithful men stay at the helm and they persevere. There's a lot of good churches here. If your pastors here, if your leaderships are here, probably it's a church where the men are trying to serve Christ in the manner we're talking about. These churches are led by good men, but not perfect men. Be willing to stay, even when things get difficult, because it will. We don't know what blessings God has for us around the corner. Right now, you might just be in the first part of chapter 5. You might be facing some very discouraging stuff somewhere in life right now. Don't give up just because you were wronged. Don't give up just because other people seem so clouded. Stay the course and be a part of God's solution and be faithful. Beloved, God wants us to be men who follow his blueprint. Todd Beamer was a man like that without really knowing that he would be used in sermons one day. He was a man who saw a need, pursued what was right, decided upon a course, and God blessed his efforts because he was faithful. Let's be the men who look for the needs around us, not who are blind to them. Let's be the men who pray and offer up to God our own resources and say, how can you use this for your glory? Let's be the men who are faithful in the work that God might bless us. Now, as we're talking about all of this, this is ultimately talking about following the blueprint of God. It's talking about living out a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We cannot do this in our natural man. The natural man wants to follow Adam. The natural man wants to ignore the blueprint. The natural man wants to be the other guys, the, the guys getting the profits, the guys having the friends but saying nothing. The man of Christ, when he dwells within us, says, pursue righteousness. And that first begins when we come to Christ and submit our, Lord, our, our life to him as Lord. And if you have come here this morning and you don't know if, if Christ is your Lord or not, if you have never surrendered your life to him, it'd be a tragedy to go through this whole conference hearing about God's blueprint but never actually engaging in a relationship with God through Christ. That begins by recognizing that God is holy, that you're a sinner, and calling upon him to be your savior. If you've never done that, you can do that today. You can leave here and say, I will follow this, not because of my own strength, because Christ now dwells within me and he is my Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we want to be men of action. Lord, I can see just from the congregation here this morning, Lord, that these are men who want to serve you and want to use their time and their talents, their treasures for you and for your glory. Lord God, may we be men of action. Father, we pray that you would work amongst us, amongst our churches, amongst the northern Colorado region, the Front Range. We ask, Father God, that you would bring a revival here and it would be through us that we will be men of action. Men, Lord God, who pursue righteousness. Lord, show us the unrighteousness in our own life. Give us a love for righteousness. Help us to recognize that your ways are righteous and that your ways are better than ours and help us to pursue those ways of righteousness. God, we ask that you would help us to be men of prayerful wisdom, that we wouldn't think this can just be something we just uh, send up to in popcorn prayers, but we are men of prayer, men of faith, men of wisdom, men who consider matters and bring them before you. And Lord God, may we be men who are faithful. Lord God, strengthen us in those weak moments when we've worked 12 and 14 and 16 hour days. Strengthen us in those moments. Lord God, when we would just assume, mail it in, no one will know, but you will know. Strengthen us to be faithful, Lord God. Help us to be people who accomplish what you have called us to do. 
Help us to be people who live for you and for your glory and for your kingdom. Help us to be people who know you through Jesus Christ, that we might be reconciled to you through him. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.